Knockback is brought to you by thousands of supporters on Patreon at patreon.com slash Stand. If you want to show your support for Knockback, as well as CLS's PlayStation podcast, Sacred Symbols, the eclectic interview series, Fireside Chats, and the YouTube gaming series, SideQuest, please consider going to Patreon and pledging for a monthly amount that makes the most sense for you. Your Patreon support doesn't only ensure that CLS continues to produce the content you love, like Knockback, but you can get cool perks, too, depending on your level of support. You can get early access to each episode of Fireside Chats, Sacred Symbols, and Knockback, totally ad-free. You can vote for show topics and provide feedback to be read on air. You can listen to exclusive podcasts only available to patrons, and much more. Your support is essential if Colin's Last Stand is to continue well into the future, so please consider showing some love. Again, that's patreon.com slash Stand. Thank you for your kindness, generosity, and support. Without you, CLS wouldn't exist. But enough of that. On to the show. Greetings and salutations. Welcome back to Knockback. My name is Colin Moriarty. As always, I'm joined by Willy Wonka's apprentice, Dagan Moriarty. Hi, guys. How are you? I'm good, my friend. How are you doing today? I'm good. Thank you. Now, I let it go in the intro there, but this episode, well, actually, you would have already known because you clicked on it and it has a title. <laughs> so unless you're missing something up there, you probably already realized that this episode is about Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, the seminal movie. One of my very favorite movies of all time, believe it or not, which is surprising because I hate candy and I hate chocolate. Wow. Top 10 movies for you? Yeah. I would even go, it might even be top five. Yeah. Wow. I absolutely love it. I know that movie pretty much beat for beat and scene for scene. It's funny because in this wave, Dagan, of Knockback, and we're recording wave five of Knockback here in Santa Monica, we're doing several movies. We're doing Caddyshack a little later, which is another one of my favorite (laughs) movies. And I can't wait to talk about that because we have some good memories with that movie together because I think I'm the one who introduced you to that movie. You did indeed. And... I didn't need to watch Caddyshack to take the notes and to prepare myself for that episode because I know it so well. And the same thing with Willy Wonka is true. While on the other side, you know, we're doing Back to the Future, the trilogy of Back to the Future. And I actually watched all three of them because it's been so long. And I'm pretty sure that I'd never even seen the second and third ones. So, yeah, I love the movie (laughs) and I adore it. And I'm excited to hear what you have to think about it. I'm excited to hear what your kids have to say about this movie. If like they have any, you know, thoughts about it because I feel like it's timeless. But it's going to be a fun episode, I think, and Definitely. I think this movie is just beloved for a reason, because Gene Wilder is a G, and it's just hilarious, and it's clearly not made for children at all. So, <laughs> before we get into that, Dagan, I want to remind everyone that Knockback is our retro and nostalgia podcast. It posts every week, as you guys know. If you want to support the show, support our endeavor in doing this show, as well as other Collins Last Stand content, whether that's Sacred Symbols, my PlayStation podcast, Fireside Chats, my eclectic interview series, SideQuest, my YouTube channel all about video games, etc. please consider supporting us at patreon.com slash Stand at whatever level makes the most sense for you each month. Doing so, depending on your tiers, gets you all sorts of perks, including being able to submit questions, comments, concerns, thoughts, and ideas to these episodes. It's the only way to interact with our shows that way, and we pretty much read almost everything we get. And you can get early access to all the shows. You can get exclusive podcasts. There are exclusive episodes of Knockback about the Mighty Ducks, about Say by the Bell, etc. that will never be released to the public, I don't think. So you guys should go check those out as well. Diggin'. For this wave, we've been starting with dad jokes. Dad jokes. So hit me with some dad jokes pertaining They're back. to Willy Wonka. Congratulations to two people that requested dad jokes. <laughs> See how much we love you guys? <laughs> Doesn't take much. Okay, you ready for my candy-related dad jokes? Candy-related dad jokes. Got Here we it. go. What country invented candy? Candida? <laughs> That's a good guess. Good guess. <laughs> Dude, sweeten. Oh. Yeah, sweeten. I like, I like mine better. I think my I think that was kind of cute, yeah, actually. Thank you. Why did the Eminem go to college? I don't know. Because he wanted to be a smarty. Oh. 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 <laughs> <laughs> 
All right, that's all. I won't torture that's, you with any more. Well, how many more of them do you have? That's all I have. Just oh, the two. All right. I only choose the finest dad jokes. The finest the ones. Can you imagine the ones that aren't the finest? I remember when you originally did the dad jokes. What was like on wave two or something? I asked you if you were writing them yourself. <laughs> Not really the sharpest tool in the shed. Sometimes I suppose. I still think my answer to the first one is better though. Candida is a better. Yeah, that was pretty good. Stop showing up my dad jokes. It's <laughs> not right. You know, we probably only have a few Swedish listeners. We probably have some Swedish listeners, but we have way more Canadian ones. So let's give them a shout out with a, there we go. the answer to our dad joke here. Now, Dagan, as I said, we're going to do Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory released June 30th, 1971 in the theaters before you were even born. And you're old as shit. I know. So that's really amazing. This is even older than you. This movie makes me feel so young. <laughs> you make me feel so young. Good song. You make me feel that spring has sprung. Is that a sexual innuendo, you think? Yeah. Oh. I hope so. I mean, I <laughs> would assume so. <laughs> I never thought. You're ruining the innocence of Frank Sinatra for me. <laughs> okay, there's literally nothing innocent about Frank Sinatra, but I appreciate it. By the way, on the Yankees-Red Sox, when the Red Sox won, did you see that they played New York, New York in their locker room when they won? And I didn't like that at all. No, what? I didn't appreciate that the very Sinatra much. The Sinatra version? Yeah. What? Yeah. No, I don't approve of that. No, I don't approve of that at all. Now, that's gross. Dagan. Yes, please. Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. Mm-hmm. Fantastic film. One of my favorite films, like we said. I think you have a lot of love for it, too. A lot of people I love do. this movie. And I think that there's something utterly timeless about it. I mean, we're approaching the 50th anniversary of this movie in just a few years. It's 47 years old right now. It's really amazing how old it is. And, you know... It's funny because mom tells us stories or tells me stories about how she remembers seeing it in the theater and how it was quite popular and the line was wrapped around and people were really quite enthusiastic to see it. And, you know, I don't know that anyone really expected it at the time to be this cult favorite that it is now, this movie that I would assume parents still show their kids with regularity. And I would imagine adults still have an affinity for because not that I watch TV much anymore. I mean, we're watching VOD now and streaming and all this. So I'm not really watching TV very much like, you know, with a cable box unless I'm watching football, but in the rare times in the passing times where I'm looking through the guide and I see this movie on something, I watch it and it's never old. It never gets old. There's some, there's some slow moments. I could probably cut 15 minutes out of this movie and make it a little bit better. You know, apart from that, I I have, I have very few complaints about it. I think that there's probably, it's a little slow in the beginning. I think you can get rid of like the whole cheer up Charlie thing, which I think one of our, listeners kind of wrote in about but other than that you know what's so funny about this is that even though gene wilder who plays willy wonka and is a famous actor who we'll talk a great deal about i'm sure here in this show digging what's so funny to me is that there are so many memorable characters including i assume characters that a lot of people that watched it once or twice would never pick up on like for instance my favorite character is arguably mr salt you know veruca's dad who's amazing he's great so before we even get into the history of the movie, who's in it, we're obviously going to get into the questions and comments and concerns that our listeners that sent them in droves, by the way, when we solicited oh, questions on Patreon. What do you think about when you think about Willy Wonka? What comes to mind? Well, it's funny that you brought up mom talking about it because I specifically remember mom and dad telling me about this movie growing up as a kid. Same thing. I think they must have saw it in their pre-marriage or just married, heady, young days. Mom and dad saw it in the theater together. I think they saw it with Aunt Janet and Uncle Frank. I, th- I think that was the whole story. They did everything together, those guys. So. I'm sure there was no drugs involved in that. No, absolutely no drugs. It was a drug-free, <laughs> drug-free <laughs> escapade or not. <laughs> but 
I remember them telling me about it, and I remember it was one of the first movies that they introduced to us, and we must have watched it. I'm, you know what's funny? I'm not sure. It seemed like it predated VHS for me. You know, I know it came out in the very early 70s. I think it predated VHS, so they must have showed this movie on TV a lot. I'm imagining there's a few movies that are in that sort of space for me from, I guess, the late 70s. I would say Willy Wonka was one. Clash of the Titans was always on television for some reason. There was a few movies that predated VHS because that was probably the early 80s for our, our family anyway. So I remember them being very enthusiastic about introducing us to the movie and being it was like a very joyful thing for them to share it with us. And it's the first movie, as I think about it, it's the first movie that I remember really feeling like there's a cart. This movie feels, I know this is a live action movie with real actors and stuff, but it feels like a cartoon. The personalities are very cartoony. The situations are very cartoony. Not everything. There's dramatic moments and, you know, sort of that pathos and sort of those more, those moments with more gravity, but it felt very cartoony to me. And it's one of the first movies, live action movies that I remember feeling like that. There's a silliness to it and a lightness to it and an exaggeration to it that I always really loved. So that's where I would start with my Willy Wonka. And you know what I really love about it, too, because it is lighthearted and goofy and really funny. I mean, it is laugh out loud funny still to this day, even if you know. It's like Seinfeld in that regard, where even if you know every line that's coming up, you still laugh, you anticipate it. But what's funny about it is underneath it all, there's some real messages for it. And the filmmakers aren't really shy about saying that they were not making it for kids at all, that they made it for adults and I get that vibe from it. It's kind of like how you watch some cartoons that, you know, because you brought up cartoons. Cartoons kind of have this moniker of being, you know, for children. Children watch these things. But there are cartoons that are clearly not for kids. And it reminds me of that where it's like kids can watch this, but they don't really get it. And I certainly didn't get all of Willy Wonka until I was an adult. Like what was truly funny about it. Certain scenes didn't make any sense to me as a kid. And especially the interstitials, which we're going to talk about because they're amazing. Oh, they're so good. And, you know, I guess now would be a good time digging to integrate some of the, you know, listener questions, comments, concerns, thoughts, and ideas that we got for Willy Wonka. Again, we got in droves, and I think these will set the stage because these are just kind of general things that people wanted to say about it before we get into where the movie came from, who's in it, all of that good stuff. Okay. And remember, again, support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash And if you want to interact with our show and support content like this. Mark Elfring wrote in and said, this is the first movie I can recall watching as a child. My grandfather watched this movie with me countless times. We would rent it from the library, and I started grabbing all the other Roald Dahl books. The Twits was my favorite. When we'd rent the VHS of Willy Wonka. And, of course, we'll get into the fact that this is a book, too. I love the movie for how fun and whimsical it is, but it also brings me so much joy to remember those times with my grandpa. He passed away suddenly last year. We're sorry for your loss, Mark. Oh, sorry about that. Excited to hear your guys' memories and others as well. Really love listening to you and Dagan reminisce. All the best, guys. Thank you so much for your message, Mark. Joe Lawson wrote in, and said, Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory was the most terrifying thing my chubby six-year-old ass ever saw. <laughs> that smug motherfucker was a Charlie Manson-level evil mastermind. He didn't kill the children himself. He just set the trap and smiled as he watched them endure increasingly gruesome fates. At best, he would feign remorse and drop a cheeky one-liner as he shooed their grieving parents back out onto the streets. How do we stop this fucking psychopath? Well, we're going to talk about that as well. <laughs> well because, because Willy Wonka is nuts. Absolutely insane. And Tony Bertucci wrote in and said, hello from Canada. I wonder if you're related to Todd Bertuzzi. Oh, no, it's Bertuzzi, not Bertucci. Tony Bertucci says, hello from Canada. Not a question, but a funny story from my childhood about Willy Wonka. When I was a kid, probably between five and eight, we had a movie rental store down the road from our house. This store had all of the cases for the movies on the shelves with little tags in front of them that you would take up to the counter to rent out. 
My older sister and I went down one day on the behest of my parents with the intention of renting something for me to keep me busy. My choice was one of the X-Men animated films from the 90s. However, my sister, nine years older than me, had no interest in watching this and switched the tab out for Willy Wonka without me knowing until we got Whoa, home sneaky. and popped into the VHS into the VCR and I was totally crushed. This has always left a bad taste in my mouth about Willy Wonka for some reason. Thanks for all the great content. <laughs> Pretty sneaky, sis. <laughs> I like the, the last sentence though. Where it's like It's just like Willy Wonka leaves a bad taste in my mouth. Thanks for all the great content. Very nice. I like that we start there. Now, well done, you guys. I think, Dig, that for Willy Wonka, we can't really talk about it without talking about Gene Wilder, I think. And I, I think so that there are we. multiple people that we need to talk about. I think we need to talk about Roald Dahl. Of course. You know, of course. And I think we need to talk about Mel Stewart. <laughs> I don't know, man. Like, I love Gene Wilder. And what's funny to me about Gene Wilder, and I didn't realize this until I really started to research for this episode, because... You know, you think about Gene Wilder and Young Frankenstein, you think about him in Blazing Saddles and all the Richard Pryor stuff he did, you know, that are hysterical. He hasn't been in that much. Like, I was actually really shocked. He's only done 22 movies or only did 22 movies. Wow. Gene Wilder, unfortunately, is deceased now. He died, I think, in 2016. Yeah. And he was only in 10. T he only had 10 TV appearances, including a sitcom that I totally forgot about from the mid 90s that was only on for one season that was called like Getting Wilder or something like that. What? And like where he's a like an older dad of twins. I didn't even know about this. And you have so you have to go look into this. And so I was kind of surprised that he seemed to be very deliberate in the things that he did. And, you know, again, Blazing Saddles and Young Young Frankenstein, especially, I absolutely love Young Frankenstein. And so what do you make of Gene Wilder? I mean, I feel like he's the perfect man for this job, especially when you consider all the people that wanted to be Lily Wonka. And and in reading about this, I didn't realize this, but Fred Astaire and Peter Sellers wanted the part, pretty formidable actors of the time, and every member of Monty Python, all six of them, wanted the role. Is that amazing? And it ended up being Gene Wilder. And Gene Wilder, of course, talks about why he took the role or how he took the role in the deal he made, which I don't know if you read about in order to take the role, which we'll get into because it's related to a question we got later. I did. But what... Do you make of Gene Wilder as an actor? And what did you make of him in this role? Because I feel like it's unimaginable, you know, him not being in this role. And in 2005, we saw exactly what it looks like when he doesn't do the role. Very good point. So what do you make of him? He's the icon of Willy Wonka. He is Willy Wonka. But in a broader scope, Gene Wilder, I, I think there's a real charm to him. I think there's a real sort of unique... And, you know, he's very unique and there's a real originality to what he brings and his screen presence, because I think he brings sort of sort of a charm and a humor, his timing and just his creativity. And like you were talking about the things he sort of insisted on putting into the into the role of his portrayal of Willy Wonka that we'll talk about. I think he was originally from Wisconsin, but he is of Long Island. He lived out on Long Island for many, many years with, I believe he was married to Gilda Radner, right? But I really loved Gene Wilder. I think he really brings a real joy to the screen. But I think this is my favorite. I mean, Young Frankenstein, definitely Frankenstein, yeah, <laughs> which is Frankenstein. That dad's, fa dad's yeah. favorite in the whole world. But this film makes me think about Gene Wilder, even beyond all those films all those emblematic films. And like you said, too, all the stuff he did with Richard Pryor, which they were very famous for. They were a very notable comic duo, those two together. But he, this is the the film that makes me think of him. Yeah, I can't see it any other way. You know, even beyond the book, I'm a big Roald Dahl fan. 
and I've read most of his books, and I read one of his autobiographies. I'm not sure if he has an if Roald Dahl has an official autobiography, but well, I you read, mean biography, autobiography? Bi- sorry, like biography. I'm sorry. Yeah, read one of his biographies. There's several, but I read one that I think his one of his kids might have been one of his estranged children were involved with. So I thought it would be fairly factual. So I I know a little bit about him as a writer. I think this film transcends the book. I think it really even goes beyond the book as far as the, you know, I think Roald Dahl is a wonderful writer, very imaginative, had a sort of a fairy tale vibe to his work, which was like, you know, the sort of, you know, the warnings, very old school fairy tale type lessons and embedded, you know, a symbolism and all that kind of stuff. But I think the movie even transcends the book, which is wonderful. Yeah. And Gene Wilder is just, there is no Willy Wonka without Gene Wilder. It's one of those things, you know, we're going to do Back to the Future a little later in this wave. And there's obviously a famous conflict on, you know, with Michael J. Fox and how he was the original actor, but then wasn't and then was again. And would we know the difference and all that kind of stuff? And it's a fascinating question to ask, but yeah, it has to be that Gene Wilder is the thing that makes this move. And, you know, famously, he asked, well, actually, I think we have a question about this. And I want to get back into these questions because we have so many of them. Corey Savas and Sismigu Peter, Jeshua Anderson and Jason Bola all asked or said similar things, but I wanted to acknowledge them. But we're going to go with Corey Savas's comment. He says, as beloved as Willy Wonka is, I feel like it still must be noted how crucial the success of it belongs to Gene Wilder's performance. There's so much nuance in his delivery and facial expression that really sells the role. No, stop, don't come back, being my favorite line, which is an amazing line. (laughs) And there is something to how understated he is in this and how dry the delivery is. And he's known for his dry comedy. I mean, that's what he does, and that's what he did. But I don't know that we would have this classic, iconic movie that anyone would give a shit about. I mean, people didn't really even care about it that much when it came out. It really became a cult classic later. And obviously, with the advent of VHS in the 80s and the late 70s and early 80s is when... It really took off. But famously, Gene Wilder told them he would only do the movie if he could come out with the limp when he's introduced. And how iconic and important that scene is because there's something about, well, let's go into this question. I think this will say it better. Kevin says, Kevin wrote it to us, just Kevin. We don't know his last hey, name. Ke- hey, Kev. He said, I would love to hear you guys talk more about the audience's introduction to Mr. Wonka and the brilliance of that scene. After limping to the crowd and losing his cane, he does the unexpected somersault. Such a simple scene, but a powerful, so powerful in telling the audience that everything in this factory is not quite what it seems and that this man should not be taken at face value. And that was Gene Wilder's kind of intent with that. He basically wrote that in himself and said he would only do the movie if he could introduce himself that way. He's not the way he was supposed to be introduced at all. And, you know, he says himself, there's a great documentary. It's a short one. You guys can watch called Pure Imagination. It's also a book about the making of the movie. I've never read the book. I can't say that, but I did watch some of it on YouTube. And he was basically, you know, kind of saying that I don't want anyone to believe anything I say. And that's kind of the character is that Willy Wonka is kind of a liar, you know, or at least like he's a liar or he's deceiving people. But the goods are still there. He's got the goods. He's got the money. He's got the candy. He's got the factory. Everything's working fine, but he's kind of full of shit, you know, and that introduction lays everything out and lays to bear that entire character, I think, as well, which is awesome. As I mentioned earlier, there are other players that are kind of notable in here. We talked about Roald Dahl. I think Roald Dahl is a great place to start. Roald Dahl, a famous writer, author, thinker, as it were. The book came out. It was called Charlie and the Chocolate Factory in 1964. They changed the name because the movie's really not about Charlie so much as it's about Willy Wonka, especially the second two-thirds of it. 
So they did change the movie. And there is a sequel, Charlie and the Great Glass Elevator, which came out in 1971. And Roald Dahl distanced himself a great deal from the movie. He didn't like the movie. And he swore that a sequel or a remake would never happen when he was still alive. And it didn't. And when he died, then we got... Then they got it. They got You know, they finally got Burton involved and Johnny Depp. And, you know, they got it all wrong, basically, in my opinion. But it is very true to the book. It is way more true to the book to be fair, than the movie is, which is not incredibly true to the book at all. Roald Dahl wrote the screenplay, but famously it was rewritten basically and heavily edited by David Seltzer. And people would know David Seltzer. I would know him most from the Omen series. He wrote and directed those movies, but he also wrote and directed Lucas, which is a classic 80s teen movie as well that people might enjoy. But he kind of added in a lot of the musical numbers. He added in Slugworth as like kind of a or an antagonist slugworth pretty much only mentioned in passing in the book as people might recall so he made some pretty key changes and that really got under roald dahl's skin and roald dahl basically hated the movie because of that which is super interesting and roald dahl is a weird character you can read about him he's very controversial actually if you read about him and his kind of relationship with i think his wives and his kids i think have been very complicated but you guys might know roald dahl from his other books matilda james and the giant peach the bfg fantastic mr fox the twits etc famous an iconic second half of 20th century children's young adult novels, basically, that you guys can go check out. What is your favorite Roald Dahl stuff? I mean, do you do you have an affinity for any of his stuff? I did as a kid. I really did enjoy his work because Dana, our sister, introduced me to him. Yeah, you know, she as, loved as, his as stuff. Yeah. What was your favorite? I'm pretty partial to Matilda. Yeah. I like that character. And by the way, when the movie came out in the 90s, in the early 90s, the Matilda movie, I thought they did a pretty nice job with it. You know, it almost reminds me, I don't know if this is really accurate because I haven't read it in so long, but it kind of reminds me of Harry Potter in a way, in the very only in the specific way that like Matilda is basically just like this unwanted, like but yes, smart and, and, and capable child. Yeah. That's kind of cast in this unusual situation and kind of does the best she can with it. Yeah. Like, kind and of so Harry Potter similar, similarities stop there, of course. Yes, but, I understand yeah. that for sure. Yeah, I always was partial to James and the Giant Peach. It was one of the first, it was actually one of the first books that I read, you know, chapter books, quote unquote, although it's relatively short. One of my favorite stories by him. I'm not a big fan of the Burton movie animated film but i love the i love the book that's one of my favorites and i like charlie and the chocolate factory too i think it's quite good actually yeah but roll dodd i just i think yeah he was famous very mercurial supposedly a di- pretty difficult character but a brilliant writer really a brilliant craftsman his stories are you know part of like we had we all came through that you know and, my, and now my kids are reading him that's great yeah it's timeless and i'm glad that he lives on because this stuff's good i mean I didn't read the Charlie and the Chocolate Factory book until much later, but I did read Charlie and the Great Glass Elevator when I was a kid. I remember very vividly buying it in this bookstore in Logan Airport in Boston because mom used to work for an airline. So I would spend a lot of time and this was pre 9-11. So I was like running around that airport like I own the fucking place. It was awesome. <laughs> you never get away with it anymore. Those heady days. And I remember buying it in this bookstore. I also bought Dragonlance at that bookstore and a bunch of other stuff later nice. on that you know, I got introduced to. But I remember buying it and, and loving it and, and kind of continuing that story of what happens with him and his family after the Great Glass Elevator kind of breaks orbit, which we don't really see in the movie. But the other, I guess, key player here is Mel Stewart. And Mel Stewart directed, you know, like 200 films or something in this time. But it was his daughter. And by the way, he directed Welcome Back, Cotter, which is like one of my favorites. Right. But and for people that don't know Welcome Back, Cotter, Welcome Back, Cotter is like a mid to late 70s sitcom about a teacher in Brooklyn. It's where John Travolta got his start. And it's 
hilarious. It's absolutely awesome about this group of kids called the Sweat Hogs. It is a really funny show. It's great. Really, really funny. And about how this like teacher, Mr. Cotter, like comes from their neighborhood and understands them and stuff. It's a very relatable show. Good show. Anyway, Mel Stewart's daughter read Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, Roald Dahl's book, and came up to him and his friends who were kind of financiers and stuff and said, like, let's you guys should make this movie, like make this movie. And they listened, they listened, you know, read the book, obviously, and then listened to her and made it. And originally Quaker Oats was one of the financiers of the of the movie because they wanted to basically use the movie as a promotional tool to make a new candy line, you know, kind of based on Willy Wonka. It was basically going to be a vehicle to sell chocolate. And what's ironic is that the chocolate bars were like these massive commercial failures and like weren't even able to be sold. And the movie was not pop. like, so the chocolate didn't sell, but the movie ended up being bigger. In other words, the movie was just going to be a commercial and it's basically being justified in order to sell candy and make money on the back end. And the exact opposite happened. Ironically, right? It had something with the formula and the chocolate I was reading. Yeah. It's something like where it didn't last on shelves. It melted it or melted, something. And it totally yeah. was fucked up. Now, I don't know if you remember this big. I remember in the eighties GI Joe comic books and in other stuff that I had at the time that there was Willy Wonka ads for candy. Yeah. Willy Wonka candy. But this is different than that. I th- I don't know that Quaker Oats was responsible for the 80s know. candy, but I remember those candy advertisements. They were a brand. Books. Yeah. They put out nerds and stuff, I think. I, th- I think so. Yeah. Right? Something like that. Yeah. So I'm I don't know sure. if they're associated. I don't know. It's but a good question. I remember that in the G.I. Joe comics nonetheless. So that kind of brings us to the movie itself. And the movie itself is filmed pretty much throughout 1970. It's filmed in Germany. I think specifically in Munich. The idea behind that was to make it kind of foreign looking, like you didn't really know where it took place. It's an American production based on a British story, but it's kind of abstract. And I remember being a kid and being like, where the hell is this? Now, I've been to Germany twice in my adult life, and you can kind of identify that it is Germany and and look at it and see that it's obviously Central European in some way. But especially when you see the great glass elevator at the end, and it's kind of like this beautiful panoramic shot of this very pristine and what we didn't realize was kind of new German city since we you know, destroyed most of the country in World War II. So it's pretty amazing that they still had that aesthetic and that look. But I didn't know that. And that was kind of the idea. And apart from Gene Wilder, we have you know a whole host of characters. And basically what the movie's about, for those of you who somehow don't know, is that there's a famous chocolate maker who's more famous and more beloved than all the other candy makers in this fictional universe, Willy Wonka. But he's like very secretive and very reclusive. And no one really knows much about him. They just kind of ship out this chocolate. It's really good. People like it. And then he runs a contest with five golden tickets placed into five candy bars strewn around the world. And the five winners of the golden tickets will be able to go take a tour of the factory and kind of get exposed to the secrets that make Willy Wonka and his company and his Wonka company, his Wonka chocolate company kind of operate and move. And that's basically the premise. But it's what happens specifically at the chocolate factory for two-thirds of the movie or so, that everything just goes haywire. So where do we begin? I mean, where do you even want to begin? Do you want to begin with the kids? Do you want to begin with the adult players? Where do you think, what do you think I makes guess sense? I start, guess we'll start with Charlie, right? That makes great sense. Yeah. Charlie. Peter Ostrom. <laughs> Charlie Bucket. How would you describe Charlie Bucket? It's worth noting Peter Ostrom is the guy who played him. The only acting part he's ever had. The only one he ever had. And apparently he even turned down a deal for like a several movie deal after he did this. He didn't have any interest in doing it. As far as I understand, he's now a working veterinarian in yeah, upstate New York. That's right. But this was his only movie part. Isn't and, that amazing? Yeah. And he plays the basically the protagonist, Charlie Bucket, this young, poor kid. What, what do you make of Charlie? So he's a young English kid, 
lives, you know, sort of a, with his family, with his four grandparents and his mom. You know, they're a family living in poverty. They're very poor. They live in basically what's akin to like a one-room house. And the story centers on him and around this famous, you know, seemingly the celebrity chocolatier that's putting on this contest, with, as you explained, with the five golden tickets and how Charlie really wants one. And that's where we ju- that's a jumping off point of the story. Now, Charlie lives with his family in the movie. It's different in the book. His dad's kind of nowhere in the movie. His dad's actually kind of a main player in the book. He works at like a toothpaste factory putting the caps on toothpaste. That's right. Which is awesome. And they're an impoverished family. He lives with his mom, who seems to be a single mom, who seems to be like maybe owns some sort of laundry business or something like that. And his four grandparents, who are all bedbound. Grandma Josephine, Grandma Georgina, Grandpa George, and Grandpa Joe, who's kind of a main character. Grandpa Joe's kind of a main character. And it's Grandpa Joe's enthusiasm for this contest and his enthusiasm and his kind of zest for his grandson, I guess, that kind of is also a key ingredient, pardon the pun, to why this movie works so well. And we have a funny question about Grandpa Joe or a funny input for Grandpa Joe. Alex Ball wrote in. Tyson Williams said a similar thing in his comment, but we're going to use Alex Ball's. Okay. He said, I may, I may be alone. But rewatching the movie recently, I firmly believe Grandpa Joe was an asshole. He's spending money on tobacco and the family is eating cabbage water for dinner. He hasn't moved in 10 years, but his grandson wins a contest and he's dancing around. He disobeys rules like drinking the floating soda, almost costing Charlie the grand prize. Then at the end, he goes, if I'm not getting chocolate, I'm getting some money from Slugworth. Do you agree? It's kind of an interesting take on Grandpa Joe, who's not really the most savory character, I guess. No. You know, I guess you could see it all, you know... He does it all in defense of his grandson, his beloved grandson. You know, they are kind of portrayed as best friends in the film. But totally, I could totally see that point. He's a little bit of an unappealing character. And you know what I noticed most recently watching it for the show, getting ready for the show, was, well, first of all, the image of, you know, Charlie's and his family's hovel, as it were, you know, his disgusting house he lives in. And I'm not saying it because they're poor. It's just disgusting that the four grandparents are in bed together as a kid it it really bothered me and even to this day that whole thing with the four grandparents in the same bed not only that if you look at grandpa joe he's got sort of a you know like a bed like an old school pajamas on and it's all yellow on the front it's all yellow and grimy and gross i don't know if it's from his tobacco quote unquote or if it's just because it's filthy you know he's filthy it just looks like it stinks in there (laughs) and I just really am turned off by that whole thing. I I think this movie is so wonderful in its comedic elements and its whimsical elements, especially with Willy Wonka. But the Charlie's family stuff is just... I love the contrast that it paints between, you know, you you really get a glimpse into Charlie's sort of impoverished situation, and it's kind of sad. And, you know, it's definitely fairy tale esque in how exaggerated it is, especially when it cuts between scenes... For instance, of showing, you know, Charlie's family is celebrating over this loaf of bread that they never get to have bread with their cabbage water. And then it cuts to Veruca, which is a character we haven't talked yet, and a very wealthy character's father's business warehouse where they have cases and cases of these chocolate bars that are looking for, you know, they're looking for this golden ticket. Meanwhile, Charlie's got one chocolate bar that he's splitting up into six pieces for his family. You know, it's I love the contrast. But yeah, Charlie's the whole thing with the four grandparents in the same bed. I'm, I just I can't with that. I like to make Grandpa George or Grandma Josephine or Grandma Georgina references sometimes just to see if anyone knows what the hell I'm <laughs> to talking. To see if about. everybody knows what you're saying. 
Jack Albertson played Grandpa Joe, who was apparently a pretty famous actor. He, he was acting from about 1940 to 1980. I think did some stage, some dance, some song. You know, it's kind of, you know. I think that's right. Yeah. And he died in 1981. So only 10 years after the movie wow. came out. But he's obviously a key to Charlie's kind of want to go do this because Charlie's hesitant. I mean, Slugworth, and there's a, we're getting ahead of ourselves, but Slugworth approaches him with a pretty nice deal just for the, you know, the everlasting gobstopper, which we'll also talk about. But he doesn't even want to go like he has other things to do. The family doesn't really have, you know, two nickels to rub together or whatever the case might be. And Grandpa Joe is kind of the vehicle by which he is able to kind of like, you know, go, you know, you brush your hair, brush your teeth when he gets out of the iron your clothes. And you know, it's kind of funny, but it's a little ridiculous too watching him dance around. And that house is very well lit. I'll say that. Very well lit house. Yeah. For, you know. For having no windows. Right. right. <laughs> for being in some, what looks like some dirty German back alley. We already talked about Peter Ostrom. I, I want to talk about Diana Soul for a minute, who plays Mrs. Bucket. She apparently was kind of an actress of, you know, not very famous one. Her character always bothered me a little bit. She's like the fucking stick in the mud. You know, she's a little bit annoying. Yeah. What do you make of Mrs. Bucket? The widow, Mrs. Bucket. <laughs> yeah, there's not... Uh, you know what I always think about with that character? Grandpa Joe, as we talked about, is very enthusiastic. Almost, if you really pay attention to the film, almost unrealistically enthusiastic about this shadowy figure, Willy Wonka. He's very, he's like, the great, he keeps referring to me as the great. He's, we gotta, you know, we're gonna win this chance to meet the great Willy Wonka. <laughs> he's like all, all about Willy Wonka, right. Grandpa Joe. There's got to be some kind of history there. I don't know. <laughs> he's like, he's all about like, you know, we're going to win this golden ticket. And the mom is sort of like really in a loving way, I guess, being the voice of reason. Like, don't get his hopes up, dad. I think Grandpa Joe is the mom's dad, is Charlie's mom's dad. I'm pretty sure. She calls him dad. Who knows? Maybe it's the father-in-law. Right. I don't know. But she's sort of the voice of reason and the one saying, don't get his hopes up. So I always think about her in that light. But she's not really in it that much. She's in the scenes where they're in the home and Charlie at one point goes to visit his mom at work where she's scrubbing laundry like these giant vats of laundry. But yeah, that's what I always saw her as like the grounded voice of reason versus Grandpa Joe's extraordinary enthusiasm, you know. Do you think that there's any weird sex games going on with Grandma Josephine, Grandma Georgina, Grandpa Joe? <laughs> I'm thinking and, and that's Grandpa probably George. a thing. I'm thinking that's probably. I'm gonna write some fa- some erotic fan fiction some about swinging. what's going on in that bed. <laughs> some swinging. Because I hate to tell you that uh, Grandpa J- uh, Grandpa Joe's uh, tunic isn't yellow because of what you think it's yellow <laughs> oh for. Oh my god! <laughs> There's some fucking sex capades going on in that household with Mrs. Buckets I scrubbing think... her laundry and Charlie's studying. I did notice school. Grandma Georgina's teeth were out. <laughs> One point. Oh 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 oh. oh. <laughs> Before we get into the kids, because I think the you know four other kids are so essential to talk about, and they're so awesome. They're great, characters. great characters. All of them are great. The and all of them are so well kind of rendered by their particular actors, too. But I guess the other adult character that we should really talk about is Slugworth. And Mr. Slugworth is portrayed as this shadowy kind of competitor. And he is a competitor. That name is a competitor in the book, but... In this, he really works for Lilanka. You don't really learn that until the end. And he's kind of like seen in the introductory scenes for each of the kids kind of like whispering things into them. And you basically find out that he's like, it's weird. David Seltzer was like, you know, I don't know what he was saying. And I'm like, yeah, you do, because he says it out loud to Charlie. Like, what are you fucking talking about? You don't know what he's talking about. 
You wrote it. <laughs> you wrote what he and said. And how do I know what he said? So like, he's basically offering them bribes to steal this new secret candy that Willy Wonka is working on that he will expose them to when they all do steal it or try to steal it, including Charlie at some point. You know, they think about it anyway. And Slugworth is kind of this like, you know, antagonist character that's kind of part of the plot, but not really that important until the very end. But just another adult character worth talking about. Absolutely. But I actually think that the kids are going to be the most fascinating to talk about. We'll talk about them in order of appearance. Good idea. In the movie. So we have to talk about Augustus Gloop first. Augustus Gloop is played by Michael Bolner, who is an actual German kid. And he talks about in the Pure Imagination documentary about how he was basically answering a call on a newspaper. And he really wasn't an actor and did some parts. He's an accountant now. But Augustus is a German boy who is in one of the best scenes in the entire for, certainly in the entire movie like one of the great underrated comedic scenes when they introduce him the guy on camera like the tv man is in front of the antlers there's like antlers on the wall so basically i love that a goose's gloop is in like a you know a german restaurant they're eating like bratwurst or something like that and this like excited newsman's on the camera like introducing the first golden ticket Winner or whatever, and he's standing right in front of the antlers, so it looks like he has antlers coming out of his head. <laughs> There's so that kind of comedy, like very subtle comedy throughout. But my favorite scene, or my favorite part of that scene, is when they try to introduce Mr. Mr. Gloop, and he just eats the microphone. So good. It's so... It's a cartoon. It's so funny. But talk to me a little bit about Augustus Gloop and why you may or may not like that character. So he is hailing from Germany, and he's a kid who delights in eating. Loves to eat this kid, and uh, tells the yeah tells the newsman that it's going to cost Willy Wonka a fortune in chocolate that he won. Wins the contest and proceeds to threaten Willy Wonka, and he's such a nice part of the grouping. Again, referring just back to like a live action cartoon. When you think of all the kids, we haven't gotten to them all yet, but when you think about the kids as a group, he's such a nice fit because. It's such a diverse grouping of kids, their personalities, their body types, where they hail from, you know, their nationalities and their origins. So it's really it's really neat. It's really funny. And I think the introduction of Augustus is when the movie starts to feel more cartoony, like the bit with his dad eating the top of the microphone and his mom, who's like the overbearing, you know, Augustus, are you getting enough to eat? You know, I mean, she's really save some room for later. Save some room for later. (laughs) And you already talked about, too. He what was the actor's name? It's Michael Bolner. He didn't know any English during the filming of this movie at all. And I know he said he felt, you know, I think the the kids kind of became fast friends in real life that filmed the movie together. And he sort of felt like the odd man out because he couldn't couldn't really communicate with them. He also lived nearby, as I recall. So I think he relates in one of the documentaries that he would go home and like they didn't even bother with his costume changing and stuff like that. Like he would just go home and do everything and come back. Which is very sad, actually. You know, like instead of going through wardrobe, they would just send send him home, and he would change and come back. <laughs> it's very <laughs> funny, but great character, super memorable, and hilarious. And he obviously, you know, to set the stage, I'm sure most, if not all, of you that are listening to us know what happens in the movie. But basically, in the quest to get through the factory, this tour, basically, in which they all sign their lives over in the beginning, you know, each of them does something wrong or shows some sort of negative selfish trait that leads to their demise and kind of exposes them for being shitty kids but often exposes their parents for being shitty too which is a great part of the movie and really the lesson that like these kids are shitty but it's actually their parents that are shittier and Augustus 
kind of meets his demise early on in the factory tour. The kids, the order in which the kids are introduced is the order in which they die Get or go away. Yeah, whatever happens Come to them. Out of the running. I can't yeah. imagine that it, you know all of them survived, but we don't really know. It's a good point. We never see Augustus again, do we? No. So Augustus, I keep calling it Augustus. I, it is a that's it is right. Augustus. No, I think, you're, but, I think but, but I think they say it Augustus in the movie. I think they do. He falls into the chocolate river that is shown in the very beginning of the factory <laughs> tour by drinking out of it. And Willy Wonka's freaking out because, you know, human hands are not supposed to be touching the chocolate. And then he falls in and Willy Wonka's like losing his mind just because the chocolate's tainted, not because the kid's drowning, which is awesome. <laughs> and then he gets sh- sh- you know sucked up the chute. And that's when we're introduced to Willy Wonka's whistle for the first time, which is one of my very favorite things. And it, and it was that was my ringtone for years. Was my it really? Cell phone. Yeah, I can't. <laughs> yeah, that's how he calls the Oompa Loompas, who we'll talk about a little later. So that's kind of how Augustus meets his demise by being, you know, gluttonous. He's a he's a glutton. He's he a wants glutton. to eat. The next up that we're introduced to is Violet Beauregard. Denise Nickerson plays Violet Beauregard, and Denise Nickerson actually she quit acting in the late seventies, which is interesting. And she actually had a stroke just a couple of months ago, so she's in oh. bad shape. So we wish her the very best, obviously. I know that. But she was in Dark Shadows for a while, which was like a pretty famous vampire-based soap opera. And she was also in Electric Company, which I didn't know. Oh, I didn't know that. For a couple of years. So that's cool. pretty cool, which that's is a cool. kind of a 70s kid show. But Violet is a gum-chewing kind of bratty girl from Montana. Her dad is a used car salesman. And in her introductory scene... You know, on the car lot, you know, her dad is trying to sell, like, basically do a commercial, like an ad hoc commercial during her introduction. And it's a really amazing character. I would say that she, in my opinion, is the weakest of the four of them in terms of her appeal. And she meets her demise by turning into a blueberry, which we'll talk about in a moment. But what do you make of Violet in that character and kind of her interactions with her used car salesman dad? Who is it's so interesting to me. It's so funny. And they feel really realistic, those characters, that family. She always felt to me like a New York kid. I thought it was always a little weird that she was from Montana or the Midwest. Because she always felt like sort of like the New York, sort of like a little bit of a Yenta with the gum and, you know, hi, sweetie, like talking to her friend and shouting at her friend on air and the used car salesman dad. It almost seemed like more of a Northeastern vibe to me, but very funny characters. He's and he's one of my favorite. The dad sort of in a way outshines the kid like he's, you know, he's a real character. He's always trying to promote stereotypical used car salesman, right? You know, fast talking. You know, trying to get over with the uh, with the fast line and the pitch. Yeah, and he even tries to pitch, you know, Willy Wonka at the factory, which is awesome. Like his <laughs> his couple interactions with Willy Wonka, Willy the Wonka's, business card. Yeah, you know, it's really really awesome. And Violet's, I guess, downfall is when she eats this kind of experimental multi meal gum that they're working on that's not ready for prime time yet. And you know, you kind of wonder if Willy Wonka is like exposing them to these things, knowing that they're all gonna kind of fuck up, like. He brings the gum-obsessed girl that doesn't even really like chocolate into the chocolate factory and then introduces her to this gum and she can't help herself. And she's kind of going through how it's like a four-course meal or whatever, but then the end is like blueberry pie and she turns into a blueberry, which is <laughs> awesome. And the great line from her dad is, Violet, you're turning Violet, Violet, which is such good writing. So good. Because when you write it down, if you just look at that, it's like, what the hell does that say? But it's the way he delivered, the actor delivers, you know, Violet, you're turning Violet, Violet. You know, it's- <laughs> Really, really good good stuff. So Violet Beauregard is another one of Charlie's competitors in, you know, the golden ticket race here, as it were. Next up is Julie Dawn Cole, who plays Veruca Salt. Now, 
Julie Don Cole is interesting in that she's the only one of these kids that actually continue to act, you know, and acts to this day. She's kind of like a, on soaps and and all these kinds of things. I think did some stage stuff as well. And when you see interviews with her today, you can totally see that it's her. Oh like yeah, it's, it's pretty cool. So she plays Veruca Salt, and Veruca is British and is the daughter of a factory owner named Mr. Salt, and it's a nut factory. What business he in Salt? Nuts. <laughs> Nuts. As the <laughs> Veruca Salt is just a brat. She expects everything. She wants everything. The scene of her, you know, kind of being, you know, introduced to the audience, or at least one of those scenes is, you know, her in the factory with her dad kind of in the office, and he has the entire factory opening Wonka bars instead of shelling peanuts for his business. And, you know, they finally get one. But it's funny because Mr. Salt, like I said earlier, is so good. I, I should have looked up that actor's name because I always forget it, but he is fucking classic. He's great. He is absolutely amazing. And there's multiple scenes that I really love with him and multiple lines, but he says something to her like, you know, she's complaining that, you know, they haven't found the ticket yet. And he's like, I've been having them shelling chocolate bars from dawn till dusk. <laughs> and then... And then he goes out and screams at them, and he's like, I'll give you a 100-pound pay bonus in your bucket. What do you think of that? <laughs> like, slams the door. But there's a really great understated scene, Dagan, in that whole kind of thing where you see Mrs. Salt, which you're only introduced to for a little while, her yeah, mom. very briefly. And she's totally oblivious, you can tell. Like, totally a reason why Veruca's the way she is. And she's like, that's all that matters, Henry. Because oh, he's like, it breaks my heart, Henrietta. <laughs> you know, and, and she's like, it's all that matters, Henry. With children, happiness and harmony. And he just looks at her. Like, it's a really great, understated, comedic scene. Oh, no words so spoken good. where he just, like, kind of looks at her like she's fucking insane. Just enough where you know this guy's outnumbered by the two women, right? What does she say to him first? She says, you're going to be very unpopular around here, Henry, if you don't find the golden ticket or whatever. Yeah, yeah then he's like, it breaks my heart, Henrietta. <laughs> <laughs> so what do you make of Veruca Salt? She's my favorite. She's my favorite character in the film. You know, as we all know, she's such the icon. She's the icon of the spoiled brat. The way she acts and the way she looks and, you know, that emblematic red dress with the white collar. I love Veruca. I think she's so fun. She's very exaggerated and, again, very cartoony and very pushed. But we all know somebody like that, you know, and it feels like so much fun. Like, you just, she's so bad. She's so greedy. She's so inconsiderate and selfish that you just know you're just waiting for some for the the other hand to fall you know you're just waiting for her downfall you know but so much fun i can't see this movie without that character and that actress playing that character you know just perfect perfect casting yeah she's awesome and the people that made the film you know had talked about in the documentary and talked about since that like she gave an amazing performance. Like, they acknowledged that, like, she really, you know, was way better. Not way better, but better than the other kids. Yeah, she outshines them. Yeah. For sure. Like, that she apparently isn't anything like that, of course, in real life, and that she really sold that part. And, like, they were, like, astonished by how good she was, I think, as they were filming it compared to the others. Because she really, in a way, like, you know, Peter Ostrom's playing kind of a nice boy, and Augustus Gloop can't even speak English, and he's just reading his lines phonetically, and he's, you know, eating a lot, and... Like, Veruca's got, like, range and, you know, is actually in it a little bit more. And I wonder, when you really think about it, like, seems to be played up a little bit more. Maybe they realized that when they were watching the dailies or whatever that they probably should put her in a little bit more. But she is really great. And she meets her demise by falling down the 
the shoot of the good ad bad eggs. They they have this way of these geese that lay the golden egg or whatever, and they have these things, and she sits on you know, the contraption that tells him it's a good egg or a bad egg and she falls down and then Mr. Salt dives in head first after her, which is fucking about that. awesome. <laughs> Just absolutely awesome stuff. So And the sound effects. <laughs> <laughs> the shot of him diving down the thing is like, oh, it's it, so it, good. It's really, really great. And that leads us finally to Mike TV, the Southwest American TV obsessed guy played by Paris Themen, who kind of still does some voice acting i think today and is kind of still in production but didn't really act too much after this but mike tv is you know kind of the if each of them is a prototype or like an archetype i should say of you know something he's the archetype of like the television obsessed violent kind of american and you're introduced to him last after or actually before there's like kind of a false fifth ticket plot right. in the movie as well which is not really important to talk about but not at all he sits there and just watches tv all day and his parents are great his mom and dad are both awesome characters they are the dad has the great line where you know he takes out the gun <laughs> like he's being interviewed he takes out the gun and shoots it at the tv like while something's happening on like a cowboy show and he's like it's not a real gun and, and you know like, dad says i can't have you know can't have one yet and dad's like not till you 12 so <laughs> Which is a really great line. It's one of my favorite lines. The mom's like a geography teacher and, you know, they just dote on him. And she's like, he's certain, you know, he eats all of his TV dinners right here and stuff, you know, stuff like that. So, you know, Mike TV is kind of the last character and he meets his demise as he kind of, you know, has this thing where they're trying to, you know, teleport through telephonic waves or whatever, you know, chocolate bars and stuff like that as a means of delivery. And he gets caught up and it gets all small and tiny. And that's kind of how he meets his demise. But what do you make of Mike TV? He's my second favorite. I think because he's so, there's such a fun to that character. He's so over the top. He's the sort of the surrogate today. It would be the YouTube or video game or internet obsessed kid. There's the TV thing is sort of antiquated now, but you get it. And you know what's funny about this too? What what's the actor's name? Paris. Paris Themen. Yeah. Gene Wilder hated this kid, and he said in a documentary they were asking about working with the children actors. He was like, they're all delightful except for one. This is what he says on the, on the documentary. He's like, they're all delightful except for one. And the, that one, I wanted to kill. That, or he says something to that effect. I'm paraphrasing. And it turns out that it was this kid. First of all, he was pretty, he was probably, from what Gene Wilder's saying and from what the anecdotes were, he was pretty insufferable. He was like, you know, demanding and sort of a prima donna, but also would play pranks on everybody. In fact, if you guys remember, there's one scene where you see like a beehive. He let all the bees out. During the filming, he let all the bees out and they were everywhere. And apparently there were wasps and not bees. Which are, are you serious? Yeah. yeah. Well, I was reading. Which is funny. So now I can't think. Now after watching the documentaries and finding out all this behind the scenes stuff, I can't think of that character without that anymore. You know, he's pretty bratty. I mean, he's he's not. Well, yeah, he's sort of like the male Veruca in a way, you know, but a lot of fun. And I love the fact that it is a little dated with the you know the cowboy gear and the in the six shooters and stuff like that. It feels nostalgic. It feels like a little more of that era. It's that's sort of a lost thing now, you know. I guess we would have to at this point segue to the Oompa Loompas, who are pretty important characters. Very much. Yeah. So our friend John O'Peck wrote into us and said, "What's worse, Willy Wonka's complete disregard for occupational health and safety, or building his empire with illegal foreign workers paid in chocolate?" <laughs> And how many Oompa Loompas died from these terrible workplace conditions? I'm half kidding, of course, but apparently Roald Dahl originally depicted Oompa Loompas as African pygmies. I can see that why that was changed. Well, that 
is shrew. Yeah. What do you make of the Oompa Loompas? Were you afraid of them as a kid or did, were you kind of like intrigued by them? I never really found them that scary, but in reality, they're kind of horrifying. Yeah, the orange skin and yeah. the green hair. It's very weird. It's like very weird, but very awesome in, in, you know, in its Memorable. art direction. Yeah, certainly. Yeah. No, I wasn't afraid of them. I'll tell you a funny story about the Oompa Loompas. My daughter, my oldest, had sort of like a little like a fascination like a crush on them it was really weird wow that is weird it was I'm really gonna definitely strange. tease her about that when she gets older. it was really strange i'm gonna make notes about that. i mean she was little she was 10 well, that was last year no <laughs> she was like she was like two or three but she was like i think that was like a hook into the movie for her i don't know if she was just fascinated because they looked so different and there was something like perceptible to her that was strange and she hadn't seen a lot of you know people that look you know little people and stuff like that on screen yet or anything or certainly in real life she hadn't seen a lot of that so that always makes me think of my daughter you know she two or three going through that she loved this movie now my son wasn't as he didn't like this movie as much you know i don't know what that speaks to they are different he likes candy too loves candy he's like a big candy guy. so that's interesting because i hate candy and i love it i was gonna ask you about that you know how this is one of your favorite films, but you're not a big candy guy at all. No, I hate candy. I hate it. I hate candy. I hate gum. I hate chocolate. I but hate it all. your love for this movie transcends any of that. Yeah, because it's sweets. just, it's funny and it's whimsical and it's, you know, I think that you can identify as a young kid, even though you don't get all the jokes maybe as a young person and you don't get all of the things that they're trying to portray in the movie that there's some underlying message and you can kind of see again the archetypes of the different kids and kind of identify or not identify with what they're doing and how they're acting and maybe even you know people or know kids or your contemporaries your peers that are kind of act like this and there's just something fun and fast moving about the movie it almost feels like it's over before it begins like even though it's of a normal movie length especially for the time in the early 70s but I don't know I found it very compelling and I always did find it, it doesn't matter. It can be a, it can be an anything factory. It can be a, a, a gear factory. Like it doesn't matter. It's about these characters and how well they're written and how extraordinary the catch is, you know. And the fact is, and that we haven't talked about is that it's a musical. So yeah, there's a lot of songs in it, and I'm actually only super intrigued by the Oompa Loompas songs because they're amazing. They're so good. First of all, what the hell is going on in that place? <laughs> Everyone seems to be awfully prepared for these kids to kill themselves in this factory. Certainly, there has to be fan fiction or some funny shit about this, about like what the hell went on in the days, weeks, and months leading up to this visit. They have musical numbers. They're all moving around in sequence and (laughs) dancing and singing. Songs very specific specific to the kids. And Indeed. the situation in which they die or they, you know. Yeah. The infrastructure seems set up to sort of dispose of them or deal with the problem as it arises. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah, you got, you're on to something with that, I think. Uh, the Oompa Loompas are a little, you know, they're interesting. And, you know, the funny thing about the actors, you know, obviously they're all little people that are playing them. As you can see, they're not children or whatever. And, you know, some of them are, you know, German. Some of them are British. A lot of them, I think, were Turkish and other things like that. Many of them didn't speak English. And it's funny. When you watch it, you can see that there, a lot of them are mouthing the songs. They're mouthing them wrong. And I don't know. I find that when that music kind of, you know, the oompa, yeah, yeah. It's like really, like, it's kind of extraordinary. I would have a pretty big dick if I wrote that stuff because <laughs> I'd be like, cool. it's so iconic, you know? And like how the music, like like you can hear the beat, like ding 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 ding, ding and like and like rises, and you're like, they're all coming out and doing their little, their little moves. I like definitely the it's very iconic. It's very iconic. And you know what I love about those sequences too that I really I don't want to forget to talk about the graphics. 
the text graphics mm-hmm. that go over that it's very innovative for its time there wasn't a lot of that stuff going on yet I, I really dug that that was really neat who was your favorite oompa loompa <laughs> <laughs> the orange one with the green hair there is that one guy that still does some appearances and stuff that you would recognize who's i know like who you're British, talking who's about like kind of the classic oompa loompa that everyone kind of you know he does you know interviews and stuff like that i wish i knew that guy's name i don't Matthew Major wrote into us. And again, you guys can support us at patreon.com slash Collins Last Stand if you'd like to write into us too for future episodes. He says, hi, boys. My friend and I love Willy Wonka, one of the greatest movies ever made. My question for you guys is, do you feel this movie should also be known for its soundtrack? Some amazing and unforgettable songs. Thank you both for a se- for Knockback. It's the best podcast you have ever done, hands down. Wow. P.S. Some of the best movie quotes as well. And we'll talk about the interstitials later. But he says, two? I can't figure out just two. Let's say you have 200. I'm doing terrible British accent. I'm sorry. Of course, bad. we're referring to... Mr. Turpentine, we uh, Charlie's teacher. Yes, sir. How do you feel about the soundtrack in terms of, you know, I, I brought up earlier and someone wrote into us actually and said, you know, Cheer Up Charlie kind of like removes the wind from the movie a little bit. I would totally I cut it. that. I hate it. I don't even like Grandpa Joe's and Charlie's dance number in the incredibly well-lit hovel that they live I've in. I've got a golden ticket. Right. I don't feel like, honestly, any of the songs add anything to, to it except for the Oompa Loompa songs. And to be perfectly honest with you, if they just removed all of the songs except for the Oompa Loompas, that they could have had an arc where, like, this is how the Oompa Loompas communicate. There you go. And, like, it like wasn't a musical at all. Like, this is, like, the weird-ass shit they do in the factory. I like that. See, that would have been fucking cool. That's a good idea. Okay. We're, like, I'm on board imagine you got an hour into the movie before you see the Augustus song. At the factory, and you're like, "What the fuck is this?" Yeah, that would be amazing. You know, like you had not seen any songs leading up to this point at all, and then like, ding, 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 and like they're all like, because <laughs> everyone like looks at them like they're all like, it's kind of there's some funny deadpan shots of the people being like, "What, what?" And that would have been funnier, I think, if they just did that. I really like that idea. I'm trying to really rack my brain to see if there's any other songs we would miss, but I don't think so. It's oh, not Candy like Man. A... How yeah, do you feel about that? Yeah. Sammy Davis supposedly wanted to play that part. Yeah. To sing that song. And apparently they said no because he's like too noticeable. Because there's a lot of like, you know. Yeah, he's too y- famous. Yeah, exactly. Too famous. Exactly. There is a funny shot that I saw in the candy store. And we're talking about the candy store run by the nice man in kind of Charlie's hometown. Dick where Van Dyke. I know. He looks like. I was going to say he looks like Dick Van Dyke. It's low rent Dick Van Dyke. Yeah, like a low rent Dick Van Dyke. <laughs> kind of a nice guy just like selling candy to the local children or whatever. And. There's a shot that's pretty amazing during the Candyman song, during like one of the sequences where he's lifting up the counter to get through it, and he almost destroys this little girl's face. Ooh. And you can see her; she like backs up like this, and like and and she just. Go, you guys should go look at it. Oh, you want I to have see to it. see that girl this. would have been dead. Oh my god, dead with a capital D if she oh, didn't move out of the way. Squirm. It's amazing. Like she oh, was like I the can't ma- wait to see that. It was like the Matrix. But I am pretty convinced that you can remove. <laughs> All of the songs except for and make the Oompa Loompas way creepier. I proof. I love it. If only we can go back to 1971 and, and tell these guys that's that idea. They wouldn't have gone for it, though. <laughs> they wouldn't have gone for it. Tom Sullivan wrote into us and Ryan Hughes and Matt Kurilowski Kur- also wrote into us about this. He said, hi, guys. Hi, guys. Long time listener. First time caller. Just a quick question. How many nightmares did you have from the tunnel scene? Oh. That movie was one of my top childhood horror movies. Also, please know Grandpa Joe is a freeloading asshole. Thanks for your time. Wow. A lot of Grandpa Joe hate in the letters. Grandpa Joe's not that appealing. He is a freeloader, for sure. But the tunnel scene, of course, happens eh, about a little more than halfway through the movie. And it's pretty horrifying. It is. 
what do you make of that? I feel like that's another scene that could have totally been cut out. That like it almost served no purpose in the movie. At it's all. one of those things that happens in a movie where you have to wonder what the hell they were thinking putting that in there. I really don't know. It's Willy Wonka at his creepiest. There's he's like channeling some sort of, you know, he's sort of like in a state, you know, and he's chanting this song as this crazy image, creepy imagery of ch- worms and chickens getting their head cut off and stuff. It's very odd. I think it was a weird decision. I think that the scene wouldn't even bother me that much if the imagery was just a little more tame rather than the squirming worms and the chicken getting its head cut off. I remember my showing, it must have been Lilia, it must have been my daughter showing her the first time wanting to fast forward through that part because it's just creepy, you know? And I remember my kids, you know, acting accordingly. I remember being a kid and being creeped out by it as well. Just wanting to fast forward through it. It's not bringing anything, you know? It's just weird. What do you? What did you make of it? Especially as a kid, what did you think? I remember it being scary, but I remember it being like I, I knew that movie so well, beat for beat, that I was like, okay, this is what happens next now in this movie. This is the this weird, horrifying part. It's like getting them from point A to point B up the Chocolate River to the next sequence. But it's like you could have certainly done something a little more normal than that. But it is an unusual place. I mean. We didn't even talk about, you know, entering into Willy Wonka's factory and all the weird shit that happens before Gooses even encounters the Chocolate River. And it's worth noting that Pure Imagination is sung in that scene, and that is a pretty iconic Willy oh, Wonka song. Oh, that is a so, good song. That is a good maybe song. Maybe I'm jumping the gun on that. And that book ends the movie as well, right? That song. Yes. Beginning and end. And, you know, Akal, I like what you said, too, about the tunnel, sort of the whimsical nature of it. because And that goes w- along with everything Gene Wilder wanted to put into it as far as like the weirdness and is this guy telling the truth? What's going on with this guy? The air of mystery and the, and the strangeness. But I think this, the tunnel thing just goes a little too far, you know? I agree. It doesn't fit. I would say it's too bad. They didn't show <laughs> grandpa, jo- a porno with grandpa George and grandma <laughs> Georgina in there. That, that would have been real be fucking the spin- weird in the, in the sequel. That would have been a little weird. Grant Olin Forst wrote in, Straw Hat Ninja, Tyler Goodwin, and Patrick Moy all had similar questions, but we're going to go with Grant today. Hey guys. He says, if each of you guys were one of the bad kids that received a golden ticket in addition to Charlie, what is your fatal flaw that would cause your demise, and how would that demise play out within <laughs> the factory? That's a great question. <laughs> I wouldn't be bad. I'm telling you right now, I would I would have won, for sure. Unless I was going against Charlie, and maybe we both would have won. Yeah, you wouldn't have been bad. I just couldn't imagine having done anything. First of all, I have none of that shit appeals to me. Yeah, I would that's have, true. I would have went in just for the money. You're immune. You're a ringer, actually. Exactly. I would have been in there and I would have been like, this is great. This place probably fucking prints money and oh you guys God. can all dick around and I'm just going to sit <laughs> on a beach somewhere and just you know receive the sums of money that this place manufactures from morons <laughs> like you. I'm just going to keep my hands to myself. Just go on. You would have done it. Oh, I would have been fine. How about you? You think it's you would have fair. succumbed? I don't know, man. Those giant gummy bears. Are you kidding me? Oh, yeah, but they were allowed to eat that stuff. Yeah, when they were in that They that were allowed scene, to eat yeah, that. Yeah, and they by were... the way, when they walk into the chocolate room, the famous chocolate room, apparently their responses to it, their reaction to it, that shot is totally authentic. They were apparently not shown that room until they shot that scene. So, yeah, so that wonder, that ex- right? They right. were re- really taken aback by it. Right, because it's clearly built in like some warehouse in England somewhere or something or in Germany. Which is so but cool. It is cool. It's a nice they idea. did it that way. You know? Really nice idea. Yeah, no, I, I think I would have, especially if I was with mom or dad as the, being that age. Oh, dad would have not had. No, I would have been on my best behavior. All right. We have to talk about the interstitials. Please. These are scenes in the movie that I think are the best part of the movie and scenes that I did not appreciate until I was an adult and that I think are 
totally not essential to the story at all, but are essential to the humor embedded in the movie themselves. And so basically there's these interstitials during the hunt for the chocolate bar. So you don't see them after they're in the factory. You don't see them before Augustus wins. So they're really just in that sliver of the movie, that like half an hour, 45 minutes. And what it basically shows you is through comedy, how insane everyone in the world is getting over this contest for these golden tickets. It's a frenzy. And, you know, the scene that sticks out to me, you and I were talking about it before, was the scene where the cops are in this woman's house and the woman's (laughs) husband has been kidnapped by criminals and they want to, they're negotiating with her to release, you know, her husband in order to get her Wonka bar. She has a case of Wonka bars and she's like, she doesn't know what she wants to do. And she's like, how long do I have to think about it? (laughs) Just really, really funny Stuff like that where I'm like, who the hell came up with these ideas? These so these are totally nonsensical and definitely kids don't understand what the hell is going on in no. these scenes or it, why they exist. So what do you make of them and which you know, do you have any memorable ones that you wanted to they're discuss? So, they're all they're all wonderful, but that one, that specific one, the detective and the woman whose husband has been kidnapped, is great because it almost feels like it cuts away. I don't remember exactly, forgive me, I don't remember exactly what it cuts away from, but it cuts to the scene completely non sequitur and then cuts proceeds to cut to something else it's a cut you know like the main story cuts to this non sequitur cuts back to the main story and for some reason it works it just works you don't even question it you know but it's so funny again that cartoony sort of thing to it where it almost seems like it's cutting to a soap opera or something it's like you know well, what do they want i'll give them anything you know the detective's like they want your case of wonka bars <laughs> you know and she's like how long do i have to think about it you know you know how long well you know did you hear me they want your case of wonka bars you know <laughs> like, how long do i have to think and then the guy you know there's another famous one that you always loved where it cuts away to this like computer scientist slash engineer whatever he is and he has this giant robot contraption that he show. You don't even see who he's showing it to, right? Oh, no, a, there's guys. There's guys in there. That oh, are, like, that's watching right. Him, like they all have like, dead, it's all, like all deadpan. That's right. They're all deadpan. They're watching, and he's trying to sell it. Like, oh, look what I came up with. This thing could detect where the remaining Wonka bars are, where the ma- remaining golden tickets are, and he's trying to program the computer. And the computer, you know, he's reading at, at what the computer's responding with and the computer is being cheeky you know until yeah, it's like what would a tr- computer do with a life <laughs> he's reading it to he's like what would a computer do with, with a, a lifetime, lifetime supply, supply of chocolate right i'm now telling the computer exactly <laughs> what it could do with a lifetime supply of chocolate he's like banging on the keys so and what's so funny about the physical comedy there is that he's very daintily typing into it at first and like the longer the scene goes the more violently he's typing into the machine <laughs> until the end he's like bashing on the buttons it's, there's a very wry and dry sense of humor in this film that smacks of being very English to me. And I always wondered about that. You know, the very English sort of brand of humor that I really enjoyed about it. But those non sequiturs, again, it's like you were saying, like Family Guy, right? 25 years, 30 years before Family Guy, you know, 35 years, whatever it was. And I love that sort of experimental nature where they could feel like they could just do something fun and silly, you know, and that, that, I, I kind of wish the whole movie was like that. I don't know if it works better to have the whole movie like that or if it, if it cuts away to those scenes with more gravity. I'm not sure. But I, those are the parts of the movie, the film that I enjoy, the parts that really are the silly bits that feel like live action cartoons. That's what I love about this movie. There's a couple other ones that are worth noting. There's just a shot. It doesn't even show you the inside. It's like a few seconds, a shot of the White House with a Wonka I truck, in front, a tr- truck in front of it, which is awesome. And... There's the shot of the Japanese store selling all the Wonka bars and like how it's all being sold around. 
around the world. And we talked about Mr. Turpentine earlier, the teacher, but he's an amazing, incredibly British actor doing a very dry performance. And he's basing his math kind of lesson on the percentage of them finding a golden ticket in the Waka bars. And he's going around the room asking everyone how many Waka bars they purchase. And it's like 150, 250. And then he gets to Willie and he's like, you know, or Willie, he gets to uh, Charlie and he's like, you know, uh, how many did you buy? Two. He's like, all right, 200. So and he's like, no, just two. And he's like, two? I can't do two. <laughs> that was perfect. That was pretty good. It really, really, you know, very, very funny scenes throughout that, you know, are non sequiturs. Another one is the auction in Britain where they're auctioning things off and he's going crazy. Then he ends with like, you know, kind of insinuating that Queen Elizabeth II came in. He's like, your majesty. <laughs> I'm doing a bunch of bad British accents today. I'm sorry for our British audience. I'm offending you. <laughs> Dig, what have we left unspoken? Because I think that there are a few more elements we can talk about, but I'm yeah. wondering what's, what are in your notes that you might want to bring up? You know what? One thing about this movie for my own personal sort of thing with this film is that the cool thing about this movie is how it kept getting churned up in my life as I was researching for the movie and sort of thinking about my own personal attachment to it you know i enjoyed it as a kid when mom and dad first introduced it to me and then i was able to sort of re-enjoy it as i found out about roald dahl as a writer you know maybe i was in third or fourth or fifth grade and then sort of rediscovering it that way and then again later when i was a teenager in my mid-teens it was in a really famous there was clips from Willy wonka in a really famous skate video called blind video days there was clips of the film interspersed with mark gonzalez Mark Gonzalez is a famous skateboarder, his part. And then again, later on, after the Tim Burton version. So it's funny how this movie kept coming up, you know, kept kind of getting brought to the surface and just being. And then again, with us researching it, you know, and always finding something new. It's it's a relatively short film. It's not very long. It's not very involved, but it's pretty timeless. It's a pretty timeless film. There's always something new that you could discover and enjoy about it. That's a big part of why I think we did it, you know, that I know how fond you are of it as well. The only other thing I thought about really was Gene Wilder's insistence on surprising, we talked about this a little bit already, surprising the other actors, especially the child actors, with the things that he did in the movie so they could get a real response, a real authentic response from the actors. And they did that, apparently, Gene Wilder and... Mel Stewart were really in sync with that and really both wanted to get that in the movie, those authentic reactions, especially from the kids, which makes sense. These kids are seeing like this fantasy world, basically. And I thought that was always really cool. Like, for instance, I think um, when Gene Wilder came out with the cane, that famous scene, and he does the somersault, Veruca and some of the other kids didn't know he was going to do that. And their surprise was a real authentic take on thinking he got hurt, which was kind of neat. You know, I love stuff like that where they're trying to really be thoughtful about it. Absolutely. And, you know, it shows a lot of wisdom in Gene Wilder as an actor, because as I said earlier, between, you know, his film career was from 1967 to 1991. And then he didn't do another film ever again. And he only did 22 movies. So, you know, as I said earlier, I think that there's a real wisdom in the way he approaches movies. I mean, some famous actors do 22 movies in five years, six or seven years. They can. Yeah. He was very deliberate, like I said, in what he chose, and I think that he put real thought into the characters that he was playing, and there's something about that, about you know having that kind of foresight to know that the reactions are going to be better, that the end result and the end product is going to be you know much improved by just taking these little words of advice from an actor who, you know, at this point, I mean, his acting career beginning in 67 means he's only been doing this for a few years at this point. This is an early movie for Gene Wilder. This isn't 
something he did deep into his career. And so I think that we can speak a great deal about the man, you know, God rest his soul, because, you know, he, like I said, he's deceased now, just, just a comedic genius. And I don't know, I'm, I'm so fascinated by people that show that kind of restraint. We talked a little bit about it in the Calvin and Hobbes episode we did of Knockback, but, you know, and I was talking about how we were talking about selling out and not selling out and what's the right thing to do. And, you know, I don't know that there's a right answer or a wrong answer. I kind of came down on that. And I think you came down on that on different sides. But I will say that there's something about someone who, like, clearly said no to a lot of stuff. He still said yes to a lot of things, but clearly Gene Wilder could have been in a lot of things and yeah. chose not to be. And so I think that also makes Willy Wonka special, along with Young Frankenstein, along with Blazing Saddles and some of these other, you know, iconic Gene Wilder films. They're special because, like, he took his time and he chose the projects that made the most sense for him. And so maybe people were wise to listen to him in the production of this. Because at this point, you know, with some of the people that were responsible for, you know, making the film, these guys were not new at this. And so to take advice from an actor who at the time, you know, wasn't that big of a deal. You know, he didn't carry this movie. This movie didn't kill at the box office or anything like that. It's very well you know, said. Very I think that well it, said. I think that there's something really interesting about that. Dave, we have a trio of unread questions and comments that I wanted to bring up for the audience. Oh, okay. Shane Hendrickson wrote it and said, "Were you disappointed? Were you were you as disappointed as I was when Nestle actually released a Wonka branded Everlasting Gobstopper? And not only was it not Everlasting, it was basically just a jawbreaker. Little kid me was crushed. Do you remember that? I don't. Was I wonder if it was was it shaped that way? Like that odd sort of I don't know star shape. Jagged. Yeah, it wasn't it was an interesting candy. It's like white with like little color, almost M and M looking things sticking out of it. Yeah, it's it was strange. Oh, that, I I never knew that. Yeah, I didn't either. I'm gonna go look up pictures of that. Colby Dennis, we we should talk about this. Okay. Colby Dennis wrote in and said, "Hey guys, love the show. Not adult episode so far, and your recent to me episode on Calvin and Hobbes brought me back to one of my favorite childhood experiences. Cool. How do you feel about the remake, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory? Here we go. I personally think that nobody could have stacked up to Gene Wilder. R.I.P. But the direction that they took the character was especially ill-conceived, making him less fun and more childish. Keep up the good work. Yeah. So Gene Wilder apparently didn't like this movie himself, although he did say that he liked Johnny Depp's performance. He just had a problem with the, the movie. Oh, that I didn't know. And I am in agreement. I remember very clearly going to see this movie in college. And, you know, I had a girlfriend at the time. We went together. I, like, smoked beforehand. I was all I was out. Dude, I was amped up. I mean, you can ask anyone because I was so – I loved, you know, Willie Wonka so much. I'm like, yeah, this is going to be awesome. I, you know, because Tim Burton's great. Johnny Depp's great. And with a positive attitude. Oh, I definitely did. Okay. I mean, I was 21. I think it was the summer of 2005. And something like that. Yeah, that's right. And I went into this movie kind of like, you know, with a head full of steam. I'm like, this is going to be great. And I can't wait to see what they do with it. And I was so turned off by it. I couldn't believe how dejected I was when I left that movie theater. Everything about it was wrong. Now, I know that Tim Burton has his aesthetic. I know that the book is or i should say his movie is truer to the book in terms of the characters like some of the genders are off for instance in Willy Wonka and the chocolate factory in terms of like the mom's going the dad's going to the factory like a lot of that stuff's totally off yeah and he was very true to Roald Dahl's i guess original vision for the book and i just was like this kind of sucks and the the worst part of it was the oompa loompas it was that same dude that was replicated like over and over again they did like CG yeah on i forget him. his name now and I don't know. I just I didn't like anything about it. I thought it was horrible. I thought that a lot of the performances were horrible. It was super dark. And I understand what they were going for with that. And again, that is that Tim Burton kind of aesthetic and going for it. And I'm not talking about just, again, visually, aesthetically dark. It was dark. It was a dark movie. Yeah. And without the whimsy, 
I just don't know that you have the same, even the same story. It almost seems more dire in the way that Tim Burton did it. I respect that he did what he did, but I don't really know anyone that liked it. Like, I don't, I don't know that I've ever talked to anyone about that. That was like, yeah, that's great. Yeah. And I don't think anyone would say that it was anywhere near the original one. Not yeah. at all. Very different, but good point. It's sort of universal sentiment. Yeah. About that. Yeah. Yeah. Do you have any feelings about it? Otherwise? Yeah. I mean, I, I'm a big Tim Burton fan. Listen, I'm a big Tim Burton fan. I think he's a stylistic genius. But I think that where Tim Burton is weak is with an overall vision and with story. And I think what ends up happening is that, or what ends up happening with Burton's version of Charlie and the Chocolate Factory is that it lacks that joy that the initial movie had. And even if you look at Tim Burton's more successful works, at least in my opinion, let's say, for instance, Nightmare Before Christmas, there's a creepiness and a style and an aesthetic, but there's also a joy behind it. Even though it's creepy and it's a little dark, it's there's still a joy behind it. It's something that's a little bit nuanced and it's a little hard to explain, but you would probably see what I mean. This movie lacks his version of Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, Burton's version, really lacks that joy and that sort of upbeat vibe behind it. And I would say that that's really what makes it unsuccessful and doesn't, you know, it doesn't resonate the same way. It's really interesting because I really wonder why Tim Burton didn't just, I'm not always saying he should rest on the laurels of Nightmare because that was a wonderful film, but why not try, if you're going to, I like the fact that Burton tried something different. He experimented. If you were going to do this movie, which was a bad idea to begin with, I would say, because the first one is so iconic, that you would go in a different direction is smart, but why not do it animated? Then you don't have to hold it up to Gene Wilder and stuff like that because that's a very hard act to follow. You know, his performance is so unbelievable in that. Even if you go in a different direction, you know, I like the attempt, but it was, I, I really wish he did it in animation. I really, and I, I can't lie. I haven't, it's not that I always thought that. I probably thought that for the first time maybe a year or two ago. I was like, why didn't he animate this? That would have been cool. And, you know, Tim Burton's had misses after that. You know, the uh, Alice in Wonderland movies weren't good either, you know, which is a shock. I thought those were a slam short, dunks, basically. Slam dunks. Yeah, for him. Alice in Wonderland and Tim Burton's style, I mean, those should, those should have been wonderful. And, you know, hearing Gene Wilder say he didn't like the films was always interesting, too, because usually famous actors and actresses and movie stars demure when it comes to that kind of stuff, and they sort of avoid that sort of controversy. Come out and say it means something. You know, Gene Wilder obviously had a sense of ownership over the film, which is, um, you know, sort of touching in a way because he it's almost a protectiveness, even if he doesn't want to insult Johnny Depp. And of course, Johnny Depp's a genius, you know, but that film just didn't work. You know, it's funny. I think he does have an ownership of it. And I think he's earned that. And he tells stories and anecdotes or Gene Wilder did tell stories and anecdotes about that character and how people would see him and kids would see him in real life and how he kind of would learn to embrace that. And, you know, he told a really kind of tender story in that Pure Imagination documentary about how this parent with a couple kids came up and kind of whispered to him, like, can I tell them that you're Willy Wonka? And he said yes, and they were, like, full of awe and stuff. And it was, you know, a pretty incredible thing. And so I think it's right to take that seriously. If there's such a legacy there that will last for a really long time, then, of course, you want to protect that and and be candid. And Gene Wilder never struck me as a dude that wasn't going to say, you know, what he meant, especially with his, you know, very long friendship with Richard Pryor and stuff. It's It just seems like, you know, that kind of influence wouldn't, wouldn't be surprising to me. J. 
Jackie Orston wrote in with the final question we will read today and said, did either of you read the original book into a lesser extended sequel? If so, do you prefer the book or the film? How have your opinions on one influenced the other? Personally, while I do like the film, I wish it had been more faithful to the book, like Tim Burton's version was, Johnny Depp's interpretation of Wonka notwithstanding. Well, we, we stuck on that a little bit already, Jack, but I will say I like that they took liberties with it because I think that anything that was different about it that was more in line with the book in the early 70s, while we wouldn't have known the difference now, could indelibly affect the movie in a, in a negative way. So I'm glad that they kind of strayed from it and made the decisions that were best for the film because this is one of the examples where the book is kind of irrelevant and I, I hate saying that but I've read the book I haven't read it in a long time but it doesn't really matter like the book isn't what's famous the movie is what's famous and it's usually not the other way around or there's usually a little bit more of a split usually the book is better than the movie etc but with this the book is like five percent of the equation I don't think anyone gives a shit compared to you know the movie and I think that that's well earned and I think that being a rare reality in Hollywood or a rare reality in the world of publishing, I think is something that speaks a great deal to it. I'm not insulting Roald Dahl. I think Roald Dahl is a genius in his own right and clearly wrote a great number of iconic young adult and children's books that are worthy of praise. But nothing that I've ever read from Roald Dahl is anywhere near as good as that movie. And that's kind of just the way it goes for me, you know? And so I have to kind of pay attention to that. Completely agree. And I think a big part of that is Gene Wilder really propelled the movie version to the stat he was a big part of what propelled that movie to the status that it's held in and the esteem that it's held in and it like you said it deserves that the, the book is wonderful I'm, I'm in the same boat as you though i haven't read it in a long time i, I would have loved the chance to have read it for this conversation but maybe we'll do a roll doll topic or we could even break out his various works who knows in the future or we just talk about children's literature you know topics yeah or we'll whatever. have We'll have opportunity yet to get back to this, I think. Because I agree with you. I hate saying that because I know how esteemed Roald Dahl is and how much I enjoy some of his books. But when you're looking at a movie that's just better than anything he's ever made, and that was made better, by the way, by another writer writing the screenplay or rewriting a screenplay, that kind of says something to me. Like, Absolutely. He was a little bit out of his depth maybe writing a screenplay. That's a totally different skill set than writing a piece of fiction, a novel. But you know, the fact that someone had to come in and clean that up for him and that that bothered him and that that movie the end result of that cleaned up script was an iconic movie and that, that bothered him even more, I think says something that he didn't quite understand what the magic is in his own characters. Very similar to who? George Lucas. Yes. So. Yeah. Kind of losing the thread or, you know, losing your way a little bit. And there's also some controversy. I don't know how true this is. There's also a little bit of controversy with how quote unquote unhappy role doll was with this film because there's supposedly photos of him at premiere parties and stuff like that for when the movie first debuted and first hit theaters where he was looking quite content and happy with everybody. So who knows if he was putting on a happy face or if it was a publicity thing or if he was, you know, if something, something had soured with him in retrospect. Who knows? But I remember hearing that in one of the documentaries or one of the little offshoot documentaries about that. Yeah, that it might be a little overstated over the decades. Exactly. Yeah, it could be. And it could also be that he was happy at the time he was making his money and all that kind of stuff. But at the same time, with the legacy of the movie being so cemented and being more famous than literally anything he's ever done, then maybe that does sour him. He did seem like a little bit of, like many writers, a little bit of, you know, uh, self-absorbed and thinking that he had all the right solutions. And I would love to have seen his script because it's funny because he agreed that it should be a musical. But a lot of the musical numbers were written by that other guy, David Seltzer or whatever. So really interesting stuff. Makes me want to go watch Lucas, actually. I haven't seen that movie in a long time. Yeah, me either, actually. Good flick. Dig, before we get into our new closing segment for this wave, which yes, is sir. You're the Worst, <laughs> do you have any closing comments about Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory? The no, I would just film? say there's probably some people, I would imagine there might be some people out there who 
this movie fell under the radar for. Guys, definitely check it out. It's really a wonderful movie if you have young people in your life, nieces or nephews or kids or, you know, maybe even younger siblings for the younger guys and girls out there. Check it out. It's definitely, it's a lot of fun. And the only other thing I would say about this film is I think this movie, we talked about a little bit already with Burton. I think this movie would lend itself really, this, this property would lend itself really well to an animated version, even if it was a short, just something. Even from a purely, I can't help but think of it as a character designer who works in animation. This is the perfect character design movie. Even in the the way it's realized in Wilder's and Stewart's live action version, it's very cool. If you think of the outfits and the Oompa Loompas and the kids, and it's it's a, a visual feast for your eyes as far as the characters and not only their portrayals, but the way they look. And I think it would just be really fun to do an animated version of it. I think it would be a lot of fun. Well, I'd like to see your character designs for all of them. Yeah, that would be, be fun, fun to yeah, do. That'd be a fun one. Maybe we'll do that in the future. What about you? Any last thoughts on the film? I mean, I kind of agree with you. I think that this is a must-see movie. I think that anyone who hasn't seen this movie is insane. It's not a huge time commitment, and I can't imagine that on the other end of that time commitment that you wouldn't that you would be disappointed that you spent that time watching it. It's just authentically funny. I think it's great for all ages and I think different people and different ages, you know, those age brackets will get something different out of it. And I think that that's exciting. That's not uncommon but it's not necessarily common either i think a lot of films you know are skew one way or the other there's something to be said in them but i think there's a lot of gradient a lot of gray in this one that is worth exploring and and would be fun to explore even absolutely so you know i'm really hopeful that this turns some people onto it but i'm more hopeful than that that the audience that listens to this show enjoyed our conversation and hopefully all of you have already seen it and you'll go back and watch it again because it's it's awesome it is it really is it's good clean it's one of those rare things that's good clean fun without being corny it avoids the corniness. It's special, you know, and it's uh, timeless, I would say. It's good, clean fun, except for what's going on in that bed. Yeah, and wow, that's true. Thank well, you for that, but they Grandma did cut, Georgina. They did cut all of that up. Grandma Georgina could <laughs> suck a golf ball out of a oh garden hose. <laughs> and has. One <laughs> of the most perverted sayings ever. I, I don't know where the hell I got that from. That's so, I don't know. I, I didn't make it up, but I don't know what movie or whatever I got that from. It's horrifying. Dig, let's play You're the Worst. This okay. is our new segment where we talk about what the worst of something is, basically. Kind of a topic. Dagan will pitch me one. I'll pitch Dagan one. We'll end each episode of this wave, wave five with this. You want to go first? Yeah, I'll go first. Okay. Okay. I am going to ask you, this is something that you'll be able to speak to a little bit. What is the worst, Kyle, genre of music? Oh, that's interesting. So... There was a time when I was younger and more naive about music, even though I, I'm a musician and I love music, that there were certain things that I would throw away. I'd always be like, country, western. Sucks. Yeah. But there's great country and there's great western. And so if I had to choose one, it would probably be something that I legitimately get no joy and pleasure out of, something like opera. you know. But I hate saying that because it has a deep connection, first of all, an intimate connection to classical, which is you know awesome. And that... Just because it's not for me doesn't mean it's not for anybody. But I don't get anything out of opera, so that's the thing that came out of my, you know, out of my. That's you know. what first. If this was ten or even five years ago, I might say like country, but there's there's great country music. So, is there? Is yeah, there there, there really is. There really is. You know, Aaron listens to some of it, but I hear it on the radio every once in a while too. That there's like this. I don't want to say pop country, but this almost country rock, melodic kind of stuff that's coming out. That's like like really good, like really good. That's interesting. Yeah. Let I'm me ask you a question. I'm very eclectic, though. So. You do. You have very eclectic musical taste. I always appreciate that about you because you're very open-minded when it comes to it. But I, something just struck me. 
and forgive my very naive suburban attitude on this, but does Ubering and lifting around a lot expose you to a lot of different types of music? Because a lot of times people play music. Yes. Right? Yes, yes, yes. Do you think that's a way people could be... I don't want to say it in an artsy fartsy way like that could expose you to different whole new worlds. But do you tend to hear that a lot? Like, you know, do you get in a car and somebody's listening to country western? Yeah, actually, it's funny you say that. Where's my phone? Oh, there it is. I'll look this up while I'm, I'm doing this. But when I was coming home from your house the last time. Yeah. There was a I was with an Uber driver and where do I? Yeah. And so, yeah, it was in early June right before E3. And he was listening to like this almost like. I think they call it Dreamwave or something like this kind of almost subdued electronic rock. And I wrote down some of the names, Japanese House Floor, the 1975, pretty pretentious names. But yeah, like uh, I used to Uber around a lot more in San Francisco when I lived there, which is weird because it's only seven miles by seven miles and way easy to get around without Uber. And I don't Uber almost at all in Los Angeles anymore compared to the way I used to Uber. So I'm not as exposed to it anymore. But I like listen to a ton of, you know, hip hop and pop or whatever, like, Ariana Grande is a great example of, you know, someone who I would have never listened to and then heard her on the radio a bunch of times. I listen to San Francisco. I'm like, this, she's, she's great. Yeah, Lilia loves her. She's great. You know, like super good like songs. You know, same thing with, you know, a few other, you know, kind of pop or rap acts. So, yeah, definitely. I, I've been exposed That's to that. That's cool. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah. I think, I think it's good. I think it's positive. I wish more people were open-minded with music. I wasn't always open-minded with music. We'll talk about that when we do our oh, albums wait. part because there it's were things where fun. like... It was not until I started listening to rap rock in the mid 90s that I realized that I really did like rap. You know, it used to be like, oh, I don't want to listen to that shit. You know, where I was like, you know, 12, so I wasn't doing shit. But <laughs> for me, what I want to know out of you is what okay. is the worst condiment? Oh. And there's true. only one answer. So if you don't say is it, there only one answer? there's literally only one answer. But I, the I'll be curious. Worst condiment. I mean, it is way worse than everything else, but I'll be curious to see if you... Oh, I know what you're going to yeah. say. But anyway, what, what do you think is the worst? And we can mm. be pretty broad with this. I think yeah. we can talk about salsa and you know relish and shit like that. But All right. You know. I'm going to offend you with my answer. We're not doing too good with this one. I'm going to say... say it. I'm gonna Don't say, say it. I have to. I'm pretty, I'm, I'm nope. pretty sensitive to... <laughs> May, it's mayo. I know you're going to say... Yeah, you know why, oh, dude? What a... I, I'm going to tell you my weird relationship with okay, mayo. Okay, please do. And Helene's been on me for this for and then 22 gonna, years. And then I'm going to discount it forever. <laughs> Go ahead. I need it on my sandwich. I can't eat a dry sandwich. I'm not trying to have a dry sandwich. But if it's too little, it's too dry. If it's, I'm telling you, a gram too much, I'm completely grossed out by it. I have a really weird thing with mayo because I only want the texture of it, but I don't want to taste it. I don't like the taste of it. So, but I need to know it's there. Like, I don't know if it's, for, it's gross, but like for the mouth feel or just to know that it's like, there's an element of moisture, but I do not want to taste it. I don't like the taste of it. So I have a really weird thing with mayo. And now you're going to say must, you hate mustard. Oh God. You're not a mustard. The devil's guy. condiment, I call it. Yeah. Right. And you had to grow up in New England where they put it on bur McDonald's burgers. That's what's so like weird, Dagan. Yeah. People really don't understand this. And some people think I'm making, still to this day, I think I'm making this no, up. No, say it. This is important. In New York, I, I can't speak for upstate, but in the tri-state, really, because yeah. it's true in, I think, in New Jersey. It's not actually true in Connecticut, so I shouldn't say that. Long Island and New York City, yeah, they don't put mustard on burgers at fast food restaurants. No. They do not do it. It it's is not a thing. Not it doesn't thing. happen, whether you're getting McDonald's or Burger King or whatever. You know, They don't really do that at Wendy's, I don't think, but 
That wasn't a thing. No. And when I w- went to Connecticut for the first time and had McDonald's there and there was mustard on the burgers, I remember that vividly because mom took it and was like, oh, it's butter. I remember her saying that because no one knew what the hell was going on. <laughs> the fuck would you put mustard on a cheeseburger for? It's so weird. And then you realize when you leave New York and the island that it happens almost everywhere. I think Florida and a couple other places might not do it. And that's probably from Snowbirds bringing their traditions down there. But it's a it's a real thing. Mustard sucks. It's horrible. <laughs> I want to be straight up about that. Do you eat hot dogs? Yeah. You well, you want to eat a mustard must what do you do? Plain? Ketchup, mayonnaise, and oh, onions. Really? Yeah. All those things? Yeah. All right. I never heard of mayo on a hot dog. I'm a little freaked out. But I've heard of coleslaw on a hot well, dog. I so up, it's not that weird. I mean, I picked up mayo. Yeah, coleslaw on a hot dog's good. I picked up mayo on like sausage or broth at Jets games because they you know how they have like, you know, you'll order your $25 sausage and then you'll go to the, you'll go to the, uh, you know, they have like the, the condiments. Yeah, sure. And they, so they just have those squeeze Heinz things. Yeah, of course. And there was just mayo there. And I was like, all right, try that on there. And it worked out great. That was good. See, I completely disagree with you about mayo because it's immaculate. You love it. I mean, I can eat an entire it. jar of it. That's disgusting. It's just eggs. I know. I don't know what, what I don't know what my thing with mayo is. I just, I can't. It's perfect. <laughs> You know what I mean? Like, there's nothing about it that isn't perfect. And it's funny that it's like Pepsi and Coke where I can tell, you know, like what's going on. And yeah. I can actually like pick out different mayonnaises. And like, I could pick out like Chick-fil-A's mayonnaise, like anywhere. Like you could put... Are they the best? Is Chick-fil-A's the best? You know, I, I learned something interesting about Chick-fil-A's mayonnaise that distressed me a little bit. Because right, tell me. I love it, but there's mustard in it. Oh, really? Yeah. Like if you look at, that. if you look at like the, it's like mustard seed or whatever is like one of the last really? ingredients. And I'm like, well, that's fucked up. Oh. But strange. there's other things where I've had, I'm trying to think of an example. I think I went to Dave Rubin's, I, I go to Dave Rubin's house, my friend Dave Rubin, who you guys yeah. know from the Rubin Report. I go to his house for dinner every so often, and his husband is like an amazing chef, like an amazing Remember cook. you tell me about that. And he cooks these amazing things, and they know I don't like mustard. And so <laughs> he made something where he's like, I guarantee you, you will not, if I didn't tell you that there was mustard in this, you would not know there's mustard. And I ate it. And I'm like, dude, no, I know we're never going to know the truth or not because you told me, but there's fucking mustard in this. and I can taste it. Like, <laughs> I can taste it. I can taste like a molecule of it. But apparently that's not true because I've been eating Chick-fil-A mayonnaise like it's going out of style for years. And never detected the mustard. I don't think it's really tastes like it, but I just... Whether it's yellow, first of all, yellow mustard is wretched. But right. whether it's yellow mustard or Dijon, Dijon or whatever honey mustard, it's like just no Oh, honey mustard. I didn't just think of keep that. it away from me. Yeah, like, you're not into it. All I just, right. uh, it's just I'm a, I, I'm so passionate about how bad it is. Yeah, you know, you, I never knew. I don't think I ever knew that you hated it that much. Like I loathe it. Like I really like don't want it anywhere near me. Like it's one of those things where. Ugh. Now what about? The mayo made with olive oil. How are you oh, with no, that? Oh, no, 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 no. That's no, no good. No. I mean, that's fine, but that's not ideal. It's not the, it doesn't have the right texture. Yeah, it's different. What are people doing? If you're eating mayonnaise, you can let go of the health concerns, dude. <laughs> it's like it's like when people have light mayonnaise. It's like, oh, white mayonnaise. Okay. It's still mayonnaise. First of all, I'm going to have a heart attack when I'm like 40. There's like no doubt about it. I'm going down. <laughs> I'm going down. I'm definitely that. going down. But there's something about... That condiment that I, mayonnaise is so diverse. Like that's why I understand why people don't like it. But I love Hellman's, or if you're west of the, the Rocky Mountains, best. That you turn over and it just nothing comes out. You can turn it. You can be gravity could be pulling on it for two days and nothing's yeah. coming out of that thing. Yeah, yeah. That's what mayonnaise is all about. Okay, thick. I've thrown away mayonnaise because it hasn't had the right texture. Do yeah. you do the squeeze bottle? Or you prefer oh, the no, traditional? No, 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 oh, no. you got to spoon it out. The squeeze bottle ruins the whole texture of it. Yeah, it's different. 
Now it's not a huge problem. I mean, I've had it many times. Right, but I would right. never personally buy that. Okay, yeah. you got you got to go for the old school. Some people swear by Duke's mayonnaise. A lot of people like that. It's like an obscure brand of mayonnaise. That yeah, I never really heard like. Of it. And there's some Japanese brands because in Japan they put mayonnaise on everything. Do they really yes. in Japan? Yes, really, including pizza and including That's rice. Disgusting. What? Now I used to make this dish in San Francisco all the time. I don't really make it here anymore because I don't eat white rice anymore because it's like you know I'm fat enough. But. <laughs> I used to eat white rice like crazy. I love white rice. I love, love, Me love, too. love. I it like is it totally too. vacant of any nutrition at yeah. all. It's just pure carbs. Yeah. But I love it. I used to have a huge 25-pound you know, plastic Rubbermaid crate and would buy, go to the local Chinese, because I lived in a Chinese neighborhood, go to this Chinese market and buy like a bag of like Texas long grain rice and just dump it in there and then have like cup it in it and like eat it like almost every day. Wow. Go through it like crazy. And I would make three sausages, Italian sausages, slice them up. Sometimes I'd gut the sausages but and crumble them, but I'd slice them up, put them in two, a, a cup of rice and then dump a bunch of ketchup and mayonnaise in it and then mix what? it all up and really? in a bowl and eat it. Yeah. It was you excellent. had me until you added the condiments. But if you go to Japan, you know, I've been in Japan a couple of times that, you know, they put weird things on their pizza, like corn and shit like that. And mayonnaise is one of the things they put on wow, pizza. Wow. I never knew that. God bless. The Japanese absolutely know what's going on. You know? <laughs> so if they're doing something, then, you know, chances are it's a good idea. I tend to they're agree not putting, with that. They're not putting mustard on pizza. So no. They're not putting sauerkraut on pizza. No. Sauerkraut makes me want to kill myself. I mean, I won't even consider that a comment. Oh, sauerkraut? Really? Oh, what the fuck, dude? You it's know, like, weird. like there's just things where I'm like, what the fuck? <laughs> you know, like, stuff so viscerally offensive to me. <laughs> Sauerkraut's one of those. See, things. I'm learning, dude, with this. All right, that's it for this episode, this very eclectic episode of Knockback. We hope you enjoyed it. And remember, you can support us on Patreon, patreon.com slash Stand. Every dollar support you guys can give us really is appreciated and essential for us to continue to do this show. We do it in person. We could easily, I guess, try to do it remotely, but I think that takes away the fun of it. I don't ever want to do that. I love doing it this way. It's an excuse for us to see each other every couple months. And absolutely. I just feel like podcasting. Listen, I'm a veteran of podcasting. There's very few people out there that podcasted more than you, yes. your, your man, Colin Moriarty. Remote podcasts aren't always that great. And you can pretty much always tell when they're remote. Yeah. The, 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 that personal exchange where you're sitting across from somebody that's missing that I don't know if it's a warmth or you know yeah, yeah. So or that's... when you bring up mustard or coldness that you can see and a visceral <laughs> like icicles shooting out of my eyes there you go so we appreciate you we hope you enjoy the show remember to leave it nice reviews on iTunes if you can remember you can find us on Twitter and Instagram if you're looking for us and we will see you next time for more knockback goodbye Collins Last Stand knockback is fan supported over at patreon.com slash Collins Last Stand The following names are at the producer level or higher on Patreon, and I want to thank you from the very bottom of my heart for your incredible kindness and generosity. Martin Beck, Fred Bentz, Michael Betts, Eric Bishop, David Blodel, Mark Boggio, Spencer Brand, Isaac Brewer, Lennon Brixey, Matthew Brousseau, Josh Bushing, Austin Bullock, Andrew Burkhart, Dylan Burns, Alex Cabrera, Brian Cacciatolo, Will Caldwell, Jason Camargo, Luis Cancato, William O'Carroll, Matthew Carter, William Cashel, Brian Chand, Travis Chandler, Sean Chandler, Kenneth Char, David Chestnut, Steve Clifford, Simon Conception Jr., Brad Cooley, Cutter Crow, Nick Cummings, Daniel Diamore, Daniel Delanikos, Travis Depew, Mitchell Durkash, David Ellis, Albert Escobar, Brian Fink, Joe Finelli, Eric Finkenbeiner, Stefano Fontana, Fodios Frangos, Connor Gazian, Alexander Gates, Michael Gates, Salem Ghanem Al Ghanem, Daniel Glassford, Tyler Goodwin, David S. Graham, Josh Gravelick, Ryan Greenwood, Miranda Grubba, Andres Guzman, Tyler Harris, Asa Haas, Azan Isa Al Raisi, Josh Yeager, Paul Joyce, Greg Julius, Jeremy Key, John Klott, Kevin Komaki, Taylor Christian Laudrin, Christian Larson, Jackson Lastuka, Donald Laws, Joe Lawson, Don Q. Lee, Ashlyn Lee, Anthony Lencioni, Patrick Leslie, Dustin Lewis, Keith Adrian Lewis, Chad Lewis, Mark Liberto, Aaron Litwiller, Louis 
Ewan Ray Loper, Josh M, Ryan T. Mandel, Joe McPartland, Wyatt McVeigh, Albert Miranda, Patrick Malloy, Betty Ann Moriarty, Abe Mukhtar, Brian Nietzsche, Josh Netzel, Adam Nix, Brian Ott, Jorge Palomino, Todd Paxson, Brendan Peavy, Marius Scarson Peterson, Enrique Perez, Eric A. Peterson, Jason Pettit, Lawrence F. Prokop, Eric R. Pryor, Michael Renner, Peter Reynolds, Jonathan Rice, Toby D. Riemenschneider, Austin Riley, Ramon Rodriguez Jr., Petro Rose, A.G. Rowe, Matthew Savoy, John Schultz, Chris Schaefer, Toby Schutman, Riley Smith, Gerard Stewave, Stephen Summingut, Ahmad Tamar, Ben Thompson, Carl Tolman, Tam Tran, Dan Vale, Adam Van Curen, Oakley Waldron, Justin Wagaman, Dade Michael, Edward Went, Mike Wayant, Tyler Woodall, Corey Wyatt, Tony Zaniga, Casual Misfits Gaming, Supershot ST, Mad Mock Media, Beric, Mubarak, Richter86, Dav9834, Chris, Wyatt Henry, Donk2015, and Random Guy Radio.